Welcome to The Curriculum, a podcast by Cornerstones Education. Here we discuss all things curriculum, plus leadership issues, teaching tips and much, much more. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline, your host. Before we start, I just wanted to give a quick introduction about my wonderful guest, Angelina Osborne. Angelina is a well-known black history expert and she's the author of the best-selling book, A Hundred Great Black Britons. I discuss this work with her on the podcast and also the importance of raising awareness in general of the lives and achievements of black British people. We also discuss the need for teaching a broader black history beyond the transatlantic slave trade and civil rights movement. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode just as much as I did recording it with her. So it's on with the podcast. So hi Angelina and a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hi Caroline, it's great to be here. Well I'm really excited to talk to you today because I've heard about the curriculum work you've been doing here with the team, um, helping us to develop a new black history project focusing on the UK, but also because I'm really enjoying reading your book The Hundred Great Black Britons which was published earlier this month and I know you've been really busy with the book uh, publicity and talking about the books. I I found it a real eye-opener actually actually, to say the least, and it's very much needed in the public consciousness just to reveal these people's stories, some mm. of whom you may have heard before, but many, many that I haven't. And I'm very grateful for the work that you and Patrick Vernon have put into, you know, that whole campaign. And I, I know we'll dig a bit deeper into that in a minute. Before we start, could you tell the listeners a bit about yourself, Angelina? What your work is, you know, and how, how you first came to be involved in the writing of this book. Okay, so I have been involved in the history and heritage field since about 2004, 2005. And that, what does that involve? It involves sort of like a lot of libraries, archives and museums back then. They were, you know, consulting us historians on, you know, best way to sort of interpret objects in their collections to present a much more sort of inclusive narrative in any of their publications and, and exhibitions that they would do. And prior to that, the first thing that I did was actually working with Patrick Vernon many, many way back about 18 years ago. I met Patrick at a, a media sort of gathering, a gathering of media people. And we just, we, we were introduced and he said, I have this idea. Uh, you're, you, you, I just got my master's in history. He said, I have this idea. I was wondering if I could perhaps call you sometime uh, just to discuss it with you further. And I said, uh, sure. And then he called me up and he said, listen, I'm, you know, I want to do this project called The Hundred Great Black Britons. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing the research of, on the hundred individuals. And I said, yeah, that'd be great because I was really wanting to use my masters. And so that's how we met. So the reason why we did 100 Great Black Britons back in late 2002, early 2003, was really because of there was this program, this big campaign by the BBC called 100 Great Britons. And it was also it was a national campaign and it was inviting people to vote for their greatest Britain. And it was, you know, there was a book, a accompanying book, a big sort of a big television series using really famous people to argue the case of 10 of the greatest Black Britons, who were who you would imagine they would be. People like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, Queen Elizabeth I, Captain Cook, Winston Churchill. 
and uh, eventually Winston Churchill was voted as greatest Britain of all time. And um, we were sort of a bit frustrated by that because we were, you know, other than Freddie Mercury, who is actually from the former British protectorate of Zanzibar and of Parsi heritage, there was nobody of African or Asian heritage, nobody on the list. And um, so that sort of made us sort of think we need to do a kind of bit of a response to that a response to these absences of black British historical figures. So we talked to a few people and we compiled a very large list of people throughout history and contemporary black Britons. And we, we created a list and we created a website called 100 Great Black Britons. And then we had a national campaign, which sort of garnered quite a bit of media interest. You know, a lot of the press uh, featured it in their newspapers. And Patrick was interviewed a few times, announcing uh, Mary Seacole, the Jamaican nurse Mary Seacole, as the greatest Black Britain. That was the, the, the national vote, because it was a national vote we collected. They would um, send their votes to us online and we collected all, all the votes. And she got the most votes. I think she got something like... Memory serves me now, maybe 35 or 40,000 votes. And um, so her being uh, named Greatest Black Britain, a lot, of, a lot of interesting things sort of started to happen after that. So there was a, a renewed interest in Mary Seacole, a renewed national interest in Mary Seacole. And then there was a, a campaign to have to have a, a statue of her erected. And that went on for quite a long while because it wasn't until 2016 because I had to raise the money. So in 2016, the summer of 2016, they actually unveiled the statue of Mary Seacole in front of St. Thomas's Hospital. Uh, also, they had found a, when we were doing the campaign back in 2005, they found a, a long lost portrait of Mary Seacole. Again, this is just by sheer coincidence. And it's on uh, currently on long-term loan at the National Portrait Gallery. So you can go there and see it there. But what it did was just realise, just sort of renewed, you know, we were really standing on the shoulders of lots and lots of historians and activists that had been doing this work for many, many years. So, so within communities, as far, as far as community histories was concerned, it was really nothing new that we were doing. But in terms of putting it into the national consciousness, it was something new. So it just sort of, so people began to be more interested in things like people like Equiano, Mary Prince and other people, historical figures. So that was really why we did the, um, the campaign back in 2003. Yes, and then how did that then evolve into you actually writing it as a book? Okay, so, um, you know, there was, you know, there's, there's provide some context, a couple of things were happening in, in the country, right, that sort of made us think about it might be a good idea to do the campaign again. One of the first things was the decision to leave the EU, the Brexit discourse. And we, we noticed how, unfortunately, how uh, quite ugly the discussion was getting. And also we noticed that, again, within the history, it was, again, this because history was something that was being put forward as a reason for leaving the EU, the reason being that we were this amazing uh, island that stood on its own through the world wars, and we, we didn't need anybody else. And again, it was presenting this, again, narrow history, view of history, as only white people being the, the principal actors in British history. So we were concerned about that. And then the other thing that was happening was the, the Windrush scandal, 
There's the Ringo scandal that happened where a lot of people of Caribbean heritage who had come over here as children in the 1960s were being asked to prove their Britishness. Okay, they would come under the hostile environment immigration policy, and that was it's a scandal that still has no end in sight. And the other thing that happened was the Grenfell massacre, the Grenfell fire that killed 72 people. And again, that was discourse that was underpinned by race and class. And so in late 2018, sort of Patrick and I were like, well, let's do this again. Let's remind people of the, the strength of multicultural contributions, you know, that we are a multicultural nation and that we have benefited from that being a multicultural nation. So we started the campaign again. What then happened was that was that Robinson, um, the imprint of Hatchet, approached us and they said, why don't we uh, be really great if we wrote a book? We put, had a book. And so they approached us in early 2019. They must have seen the campaign and they must have thought. They approached us and we said we'd love to because it was something that we would wanted to do back in 2003, but we didn't, nobody approached us and we, did, we actually didn't pitch the idea to anybody. Mm. But the fact that they came to us meant that some, there was, had to have been some kind of a shift that somebody had approached us. So I, I got to work. Um, first of all, we had a public, again, another public kind of campaign inviting people to nominate their greatest Black Britain. And again, that was done online. And that was also done at Somerset House. Uh, one weekend at Somerset House, we had, had all these beautiful cards made up. And then people could write on the card who they their nomination. So we gathered up all these nominations and there were hundreds, I think. I would say there's about four or five hundred nominations. So I had to go through them all. There were lots of uh, duplicates. A lot of people were voting for the same person. So that helped a lot. <laughs> you know, I didn't have... <laughs> but as in, in all, we got about another four or five, you know, three or four hundred people uh, that were nominated. So I made this long list from the online campaign and the cards and the nice thing about the cards, which is interesting, is that a lot of people did like little drawings on them as well. They didn't just write a name. They wrote like little, did little illustration, which I thought was quite sweet because we were people, they're encouraging, especially children to sort of do little drawings and things. So we kind of tried to think, what should we do with these cards? We might do something with them. We haven't decided yeah. yet. So then we went to, we invited about a panel of professionals, black professionals, worked in the community, worked in government, worked in the media and we said listen we've got this list what do you reckon how you know how are we going to get this down to 100 because the brand is 100 great black mm. Britain, right and they helped us this is way back in january you know this is um i had by that time i had written an, an in the introduction and i think it's really important that people read the introduction because it really mm. does contextualize everything that's in the book I definitely think so. I, I got a lot out of the foreword by David Olasoga yeah. and your introduction as well. It really does set the scene yeah. for before you read yeah. it. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the introduction really gives you sort of an understanding of where things were in terms of history and heritage and identity and Britishness. And I think before you read the different biographical profiles, I think it's important that you have that in your mind as you read it. They kind of go hand in hand. You can't kind of read one without the other, is yeah. my view. So we got down to 100 and I just got, I just got to work. I just yeah. sat down and then lockdown happened. I mean, mm. I was going to the British Library every day. I was um, researching, I was writing, I was reading, I was listening to podcasts, I was listening <laughs> interviews of people I was really doing the work and then lockdown happened and then I had to I had to keep 
pushing through and that that made it even more difficult because I was I couldn't go to the library but I was lucky that I've got a pretty large library of my own and yes. I had to buy quite a few books and that was nice uh, I, actually the the publishers were very nice and they sent through books as well that I needed and also I have access to lots and lots of academic journals because mm. so I, I mean, was able to do that what, what was the criteria for, I mean, you had to whittle it down to 100. Was there specific things you were looking for in these people? Yeah, there's black excellence everywhere. There's lots and lots of black excellence. That that's, uh, goes without saying. But what we wanted to do, we, un we wanted to understand is the criteria was how many of these people who were using their platform to help make a difference to black communities? Who's using their black platform to critique inequality yeah those so that was the that was the criteria and also the third uh, part of the criteria is what barriers what significant barriers had you had to have overcome to excel in the field that you were you're in yeah so those were those were the criteria and it was important because you know we could have written about so many people it's not that we want it's not i really want to say that the book is not the definitive list of a hundred great platforms it is a list yeah mm. is a list we could have you know as you said you know people keep saying to us why didn't you put that person in why didn't you put it why isn't that person included well you know there's an answer to that a a lot of the people that we featured in the 2004 campaign we didn't feature in this campaign because you know a 17 years has moved on and we we also have to be conscious in terms of thinking about who's contemporary who mm. most people recognize today so if there are no footballers not many footballers in there it's because we did all the footballers last time we did many footballs many uh, like arthur wharton andrew watson who were the early footballers walter tull who was a footballer and an officer in the first world war we did the three degrees the, the brent you know um, cyril regis the, the uh, Cyril regis and laurie cunningham and all those who broke the barriers of adjusting fashion who we did as well you know who was the first openly gay black footballer so we did feature all of these individuals but because you know again it's a public vote and we have to go by what the public wanted us mm. to do so it mm. wasn't like us sitting saying we're deciding who, who stays in so that was the criteria and so we thought about that so very carefully and we also wanted to kind of also tell a um, look at the story from looking at people from all different walks of life, all different fields, but also to kind of tell a history of British history, black British history, which is British history through these individuals. I think that's what's so striking about the book is the sheer range of people in it. The, the, I know they have a commonality, like you say, uh, when you were talking about the criteria, but the different hurdles they all over, overcame, the backgrounds of different people and the eras of time, that is remarkable. And that's the thing I think a lot of, say, teachers listening will be surprised and, and pleasantly really interested in, you know, the stories of people from Henry VIII's court. Uh, I mean, he fascinated me, this trumpeter, who was featured in some of the paintings or was it the tapestry? I can't, I can't remember yeah. from the book, yeah. but you know, there were glimpses of these, of black presence and black significance as far back as then. And of course, into Roman times. So it's for me, that's what really stands out is the sheer range of eras and jobs as well. You know, you've got mm -hmm. sports people, artists, but you've also got people who are high up in the justice system and, 
you know, activists, uh, arch architects. It's it's wonderful in that it portrays that range, you know, and that's important, isn't it? Is it something you actually wanted to achieve from presenting this this collection together to almost say, look, black significance and black presence is is in all walks of life and and has been here in Britain for a lot longer than say Windrush. Yes, that's exactly what we wanted to accomplish in writing the book. We wanted to show, as you say, there was a range of people and, and diverse in, um, uh, people working in, in, in so many different fields and excelling in those fields. It was also important that we sort of, that I felt that we also explored the people who were doing like really important work on the ground, like grassroots organization. I wanted to be able to marry, have the two, you know, a lot of people that maybe most people did not recognize, people like John LaRose or Claudia Jones, who were like um, Olive Morris, who were on the ground doing the work, working with people, people who were actually having a really difficult time with the systems and the structures of racism. And at a time when the government was paying very little attention to what was going on. They were very much ignoring it. And so a lot of these individuals, these grassroots individuals, they were taking care of business at their end. They were making it clear and trying to make change in their levels that hopefully would trickle up to sort of policy level. So those yeah, people yeah. are just as important. And I think that a lot of the people that we are celebrating now, the people like the Valerie Amos is the people who are at the top, very top of government. They are there because of those people because those people were doing that sort of crucial work to, to make space for them to be there. That's where the book, that's um, the other kind of- The balance, layers, yeah. The balance and also the other layers of meaning. It's not just about the hundred, as I said, it's about understanding those different layers, layers of events and layers of history. That's very interesting actually, because a tendency may be to, to teach about the stories of quite sort of swashbuckling lives of you know the kind of the people that stand out in when you're talking about historical figures to children but often it is the quiet that like you say the the grassroots there was I can't remember the name but there was someone in there who supported people from the West Indies the Caribbean when they came and just just made sure their voices were heard I think started a newspaper or, yeah Claudia uh, Jones you're talking that's about Claudia it. Jones yeah yeah and yeah. just that kind of dogged determination to support the people around her and that community was she then part of the the legacy was that linked to the Notting Hill Carnival eventually yes so, so you know Claudia Jones was actually a deportee she had been kicked out of the United States because she was a, a communist um, she was very high up in the Communist Party of the USA and uh, she was under surveillance and um, they wanted her out, especially around the period of the sort of McCarthy era. They were trying to get rid of all the communists. So they found a way. It took them about five, five or six years, you know, through all legal toing and froing. But she was deported and she was deported to England because she was Trinidadian by birth. So she was part of she was a British subject. And they thought that it would be easier if the British government could keep an eye on her. You know, mm. they'd be easier for them to keep an eye on her. And that's why they, they didn't want to send her back to Trinidad, because Trinidad was in its own, um, having its own sort of political turmoil in terms of its arguing for uh, independence. Okay, so they didn't want her there because she would be, <laughs> she'd start maybe be, start agitating over there. So they thought, oh, let's send her back. Let's send her to the UK. So they sent it to the UK in 1955. 
And when she got to the UK in 1955 and she was looking at the newly settled Caribbean uh, communities, she knew that this, her work had to continue. Um, her work had to go on and that's when she started organizing. And I think it's really important because you know, you talked about all these sort of very swashbuckling, very romantic heroes, and those are very, you know, nice. But sometimes you can't, you can't imagine yourself being that individual because they seem somewhat so far removed from reality. So when you think about, I don't know, I don't know, um, Sir Walter Raleigh or people like that, mm. you know, yes, what we don't fully understand about sort of Sir Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake is that, you know, it's quite a difficult thing what they were doing in terms of circumnavigating the world and those, all the dangers. I mean, people don't talk about all that dangerous stuff that they would have had to have to contend with as they did what they did. And it does seem rather exciting and it probably was very exciting, but I can imagine it was already probably quite horrible as well. Lots of death, lots of dying and stuff like that. But I think like people want to see themselves in history. That's why sort of people's history is, is really, really important. Mm. And talking about revolution from below. Yeah. yeah. And that comes out actually in the way you've done them. They're so wonderful to read. They're quite short, you know, they're short because there's a hundred you fitted in the book, but they all, you give a lovely portrayal of their early life to, you know, what they then achieved. And I think for children hearing about these stories or just all of us, it, you relate to that because we all start from somewhere. Not all of us are born into privilege or, you know, already have a few legs up the ladder. There are a lot of these people are starting exactly, you know, in the way that some children may read these and think, actually, that's that's what my life's like. And look what they've they've then done. Can I ask if you have a particular favourite individual when you've been researching the book? Is Is there someone that stands out for you or maybe a couple of people? Uh, for me, there's, there are there's so many, but I mean, I've already talked about Claudia Jones. She's somebody who does stand out for me because she really understood the importance of community cohesion. She really understood the importance of people having a voice. And, you know, the, her establishing sort of the West India Gazette was really for people to not to understand, to know that what was going on with them was being explored and discussed. And, you know, she featured news of people, what was happening in the UK. She featured news of what was happening in, in the Caribbean and she featured news of what was happening in Africa. So it was kind of like a real kind of diasporic kind of instrument. It was, you know, people were able to use it and also sort of advertise and things like that. But it was, it's not only that, it's just other things that she was doing, like during the, um, after uh, there was a gentleman, uh, he was actually a victim of a racist murder, very similar to Stephen Lawrence's death murder, which was a guy, a guy called Kelso Cochrane back in 1959. He was also set upon and killed by some racists, some white racists. The killers were never brought to justice. Uh, so very lots of parallels and she was writing with other activists to the government saying there's something needs to be done here something needs to be done and i think as a consequence of mr cochrane's death is that's when they and also the the so-called race riots you know which is an interesting term it was really um white people actually not happy with there being black people in their towns and so they started attacking them they wanted to do something to sort of help unify people and that's when she started the carnival uh, in 1959 which was held in a town hall it was held in st pancras town hall mm. and it was 
be televised by the BBC and I'm going to have to ask them to see if they still have this yeah. footage. You know, I know a lot of the times they tape over things, but I have to, I'm going to sort of ask, do you still have this footage? It would be really great to see this footage of the first carnival. And then in the mid-60s, after she died in 64, very young, she was only 49, she had a um, heart condition. Somebody else, other, other activists took up the mantle and then changed it into, the man, into what it is today. Mm. Um, so she's very important I really admire not only those kinds of words but also she had she was quite significant in sort of um, intellect black British intellectual thought sort of and radical feminist thought similarly with Olive Morris she's another person who I admire greatly who did a lot of activism grassroots activism in, in Brixton in South London where she was where she grew up and uh, she came to Britain from Jamaica as a young as a nine-year-old and got immediately politicised because she just realised what was going on around her, especially around sort of the sus laws, which is what they called stop and search back then. That was again um, uh, disproportionately used against black men. And, and also there was problems around housing, housing, health, welfare, and she just took up the mantle on, on that. So, and she died again young, she was only 27, she died of cancer. So she's somebody that I really admire for the work that she did and what the legacy that she left behind. You know, mm-hmm. even though she had such a short life, she, she packed a lot into the, those 27 years. Certainly. I mean, I suppose these people that you're talking about in, say, the 20th century, 21st century, are fairly, uh, well, hopefully easier to research. But uh, did you struggle with some of the, I mean, because that's the point, isn't it? It's a lot of mm-hmm. people have been, I think David Olasoga in, your, in the foreword said, uh, sometimes you have to painstakingly salvage people's mm-hmm. stories from the hidden recesses of the archives that really struck me yeah, did you yeah. find that you were doing you were having to do that with a lot of these people actually i was very lucky because i had to do a lot of secondary i didn't have to do primary research okay. i was very lucky i just did i did a lot of secondary research i did a lot of reading i had to find out a lot of who had been writing about these individuals but I understand, I take his point completely because I know when I've been trying to, as when I do other historical research, like primary historical research, when you're trying to, to reconstruct the lives of enslaved Africans, for example, where other than if it wasn't somebody writing about their own experiences like Mary Prince or Equiano, you have to what you have to read very carefully what is being presented, you know, because what you're reading is what a white person was saying about that person, okay? And you have to understand that that person had a particular view of enslaved Africans. So you have to, you know, when, um, for example, what I'm trying to say is, I was reading something up on Guyana about punishment in Guyana and what they were being punished for. And a lot of the times it was things like just talking back, not working, breaking this. And I had to, I had to, you have to kind of infer why are people breaking things? Why are they talking back? They're talking back because, you know, they, it's what they have to resist what was their, their situation. So agency is often seen in different forms and you've got to kind of interpret it differently. Whereas uh, the person writing that entry might think of it as something purely trivial or not meaning anything at all. But, it, you know, it means a lot to that individual. So, you know, people who were you know, they'd say things like, oh, so-and-so 
ate this thing to try and kill themselves. They're obviously crazy. Maybe they're not crazy. Maybe they're trying to kill themselves because they don't want to be enslaved anymore. Mm. So those kinds of things you have to, as you said, you've got to look very carefully and similarly with the whole uh, 16th century, the Tudor period and looking at black people in the Tudor period. Again, that is painstaking work. Mm. You have look very carefully within the archives within the the parish records because most of the time because it's somebody's recording people's births deaths marriages and you get some really you have to you know really explore and, and, and read very carefully what is being what these people are telling you about themselves and that's great work that people like Onyeka who's a historian of black Tudors is doing just sort of talking about how they sort of had their own agency and also that many Tudors, Africans in Tudor period, they weren't enslaved people at all. You know, Britain didn't really get involved in trade and trafficking in Africans, not until they started in the 1560s, but full on in, in, in the early, early 17th century. So these Africans were, were not enslaved people. They were just like traveling. They were just like migrants, just like everybody else and settling in, in Britain. That's interesting because around that time, that's when the merchant class, you know, late Tudors, I suppose, it was, mm. people came in and there was lots of trade going on. And it's something that's not really covered, is it, when yeah. children learn about the Tudors? But this is part of the shared story, isn't it? Yeah. Let's now move on to the whole issue of teaching, because obviously a lot of our listeners are probably in education, primary education. <laughs> there is a curriculum. We have, you know, we, we cover British history. What do you think are the most concerning omissions in Britain's past that are taught to children? I think it's not really sort of appreciating uh, British history as a global history. I think that's one of the one of the things I think it's it might be sort of tacked onto the side. But I just I feel that if you can't incorporate that reality into the history, then then we've got we've got a problem because th that explains why I'm I'm here why that child is there. Do you know what I mean? Why that teacher's there. And I think that's one of the things is the absences and not taking the time to really, you know, we keep talking about black history, right? But black history is not like a bolt-on. It's like British history. It's, as I said, it's part of the global British historical narrative. So it's what's needed is for us to be able to inject and it can be easily done in all aspects of the history curriculum, those particular aspects of history that feature people of African and Asian heritage. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's, the, that's a challenge. So, you know, there are, you know, so for example, if you are talking about Tudor periods, it's like, if you're just focusing on Henry VIII and his six wives, you know, again, people are like, I can't relate to Tudor royalty and Tudor injury from yeah. that on that level. That's something that maybe you start thinking about at university. I don't know. But if you can say this is what ordinary people did. OK, this is how ordinary people uh, navigated their lives in, in a particular period of time. OK, and talk about those people. And then when you talk about those people, that's when the black people appear. Yeah, yeah. that's when they appear. So, for example, you know, uh, Henry VIII had this big ship called the Mary Rose. It was a big warship and it sank. It sank, I think, on a second or third voyage or something. And there was lots and lots of valuable things on that ship, like guns, metals, different things that he wanted to salvage. 
So he um, would engage lots and lots of divers, people who were really good divers. This is before you could, you know, had all the equipment. Very good swimmers and divers who could go down and identify where things were and be able to get them to be, to, to be salvaged. One of those divers was an African called Jack Francois. Okay, and Jack was a very good diver, and the only reason we know about Jack Francis, which is his English name, is because he is on records um, testifying against somebody. So his his um, the person who his his boss or master was accused of stealing something in Southampton, and they ask and they put Jack Francis on the stand to give testimony. So we know that there were black divers in the period helping to salvage the Mary Rose and probably doing other things as well, you know, because I did a lot of work a long time ago on Southampton and realised there was a very significant black community living in Southampton um, of African heritage, doing lots of work around diving and salvaging of, of, of lost ships. Do you think how powerful that is for a child, for children yeah. growing up and if you're black or Asian and just to hear about people like you were in in this story in this project you're learning about yeah you are there you're at you know you know what I mean by that it's kind I of do know it, what you mean you relate to it you can relate to that you're like oh then I and you see yourself there and what does that do to you it, it empowers you it does something to your self-esteem you're like I people like me are in the historical narrative what people are getting at the moment is i'm not in the historical narrative i don't seem to belong anywhere yeah when i read about history yeah. I'm not anywhere so why should i engage in it why should mm. i be interested in it and that's what's turning people you know, students of and at the moment history is i think the third least favorite subject to students of african and caribbean heritage i think that's changing now but certainly five years ago when I did a, a conference uh, called History Matters, that was the case. People didn't want to, and it was just, just as simple as not seeing yourself in the narrative, mm. okay? And a lot of the times, the issue is that teachers will say, no, you're not in the narrative, because they don't know. They simply don't know. So they will mm. tell you what they, they know or what they understand, because when they were growing up, they didn't see it in, uh, in, in, at school themselves. And when they were going through teacher training, they didn't see it there themselves as well. So mm. they can only tell you what they've been told themselves. Which is why it's important, like when we're working with you, to put these black people, their lives back into the curriculum that children are learning about. So that it's not just like you say, a bolt on. This is throughout World War One and different eras of time the black presence and the Asian presence and what's happened. And, and I know that maybe at secondary, they're learning more or they should learn more about the colonial story. Mm -hmm. um, but it's putting those roots and that understanding in that primary level, isn't it? And about, so it's not just learning about enslaved people yeah. as being the black story it's, yeah. uh, it, or Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in America. Yeah. There's also been activism in Britain and yeah. there has been a story of Africans pre-slavery in Britain, yes. which is a real eye-opener, I think, for many people. And, I, and then it gives you a longer picture. Can I ask about role models? We just talked about how important it is for black and Asian children to see themselves in history. But what about for, for white children as well to see these black people's stories? What's the impact, do you think, on, on those children? Okay, so I did, um, when I taught at Further Education, I did um, a course on Eurocentrism and the, the impact of Eurocentrism on Europeans and on, on Africans, on, on black people. 
And if you true, you know, in my view, if you the impact of of, Euro, of a Eurocentric education means that we're going to why we have why Brexit. It's just it's in my view we have Brexit because we have a Eurocentric education because most of the people they will you know certainly when I was you know when you're watching TV and you're asking people why they want to leave why they want and they'll tell you things like. Uh, we won the First World War, we won the Second World War, we fought the Nazis in the Battle of Britain, we saw them all off, we can do, if we could do it on our own then we can do it on our own now. And that kind of narrow view of history brings on all kinds of worrying trends and worrying understandings of the world and your place in it. And I think, and you know, you, you've got, if you've got like, um, if you're a white child and you've got lots of black classmates, lots of Asian classmates, and when you're sitting in a history classroom and they're only sort of extolling the virtues of white explorers, kings, queens, war heroes, what have you, and you're looking around and your friends and you're just like, they, 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 you know, what is that doing to your own kind of psyche where you kind of, you're, you're, you yourself is elevated I'm proud of that. So what does that give you a sort of, a, maybe a full sense of superiority? I'm not saying it happens to everybody, but it's a possibility because you're saying, this is what we can do. And you, look at all you, you guys don't do anything. I'm not saying that it comes in that kind of conscious way, but subconsciously, you know, you start to think of yourself as being the principal actors in any yeah. given situation. Because you don't know what you don't know. If you're not yeah. taught about, say, I heard a child say, I don't know any black scientists. I think that's yeah. because you don't know them. Yeah. <laughs> that's all it is. It's just you don't about know knowledge. Nobody's telling, nobody's telling you about them. Mm. Okay. And that's the thing. So, and then if a black child learns about the black scientists, then what will they do? They'll be like, oh, they were black scientists. That means that I can be a black scientist. I can be a scientist. Yeah. So I don't feel odd or strange about thinking mm. that is a, that's a career path for me. Yeah. Or career path for me as a barrister, career path for me as a judge. You know, if you see these people. So the book, you know, features judges. It features the first black high court judge, Dame Linda Dobbs. So if she's, that she's able to do it, that means, and if you can see her and it were you were thinking, oh, I don't see myself in that kind of world. Well, yes, you can be part of that world. Mm. If you want to be. So it's important for everyone, isn't it? And children yeah. growing up to see that bigger picture. Yeah. I mean, head teachers and teachers may be listening and very well-meaningly wondering, how do I get this right? How do we get it right to teaching children about race? racism equality a lot of these are really you know they're important to do, to do right do you think people are getting too worried about doing it right and maybe avoiding it or what's your opinion yeah. on it i think one thing we've got to understand it we have to understand uh, that racism is a persistent problem that it evolves it changes and evolves over time and that it is a legacy of what happened before it is a legacy of enslavement and the legacy of colonialism okay so i would kind of think you also kind of have to understand i know these are really big issues but you can bring them down children can understand them if you break them down to them in a particular way so you know understand that racism is a persistent problem and it has different manifestations it's socio-historical it's socio-economic it's socio-political 
okay and sort of like if you look at sort of for example the black lives matter movement or even its previous manifestation the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s these are people uh, fighting and campaigning against a, a legacy a legacy as i said of colonialism and enslavement what do you do to get it right? I can offer some ideas, which is you're going to have to ask yourself where you stand, okay? What you understand, okay? Most student, most teachers have, don't think about this very often. They don't sort of give a sort of a, a, have a critical engagement with their own understandings of race and racism. And that's the one, one thing you have to start doing, okay? So to educate yourself, really. Yes, you, and you've got to educate yeah. yourself. You have to understand what is it that makes you feel uncomfortable? Why do you feel uncomfortable in talking about this? And the other thing is, if also um, not the, around, if we're not talking about transatlantic enslavement, that's the work that I've been doing with you guys, is that you can't just be narrowly focused on blackness and their suffering okay if you're coming at it from that angle then you've lost your students all of them okay because you're going to be a lot of, and also lost students black students and white students they don't know this history either they don't know what what's going on but if you're focusing on that aspect of the history then you're going to find a lot of people are going to disengage from it you have to be honest about the whole of the narrative Okay, and don't start right at the beginning, uh, say with enslavement, you've got to take a sort of view of where black people, where Africans were prior to enslavement and talk about their sort of great civilizations. Mm. Try not to focus on, it's very difficult, in, actually it's impossible to imagine what a, a person would have felt like being an enslaved person, it's impossible. Don't try to imagine, don't try to imagine that, that aspect. But what, you, um, what is key to understand is to understand why Britain was involved in that enterprise, what they benefited from, and what they were complicit in. Okay, you've got to, again, it's a balance. It's a balance. And I'm always, you know, this is the kind of work that I'm doing. I'm thinking about and writing about a lot. <clears throat> Teachers were like, I'm so worried. I just don't know what to do. I, I just feel so embarrassed. I feel, I feel very, not very confident at all in handling this. The first thing you need to do is think about where you are. Mm. And I mean, what, what you've really helped with, I think, with our curriculum team is it we do inquiry-based questioning for the mm. sessions. So it's setting an inquiry question and then the children look at the evidence yeah. and yeah. in a way, and that's great history skills anyway that they're developing, but it's that open-minded, yeah. let's look at why. Why did this happen? Why yeah. did the slave, the transatlantic slave trade actually start? Yeah. What were the reasons for it? But also, like you said, what was what led up to that and what happened afterwards. I, I noticed one of the questions we've got in our curriculum project with you is what happened to the African nations once slavery was abolished? And that story is something to be told, you know, and, yeah. and for the children to find out about. Likewise, maybe they didn't realise that there were black people involved in the abolition movement as well. Mm -hmm. Very, very pivotal. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's kind of like beginning i mean teachers and primary schools have often addressed racism but this is different now we're, we're into a, a new era aren't we of mm -hmm. teaching children a lot more the bigger picture including more stories of people mm -hmm. throughout history yeah. and like you say it's they've got questions children are coming and asking yeah. their teachers what is yeah. black lives matter what yeah. is yeah. what's going on so as long as the conversation keeps going and people are 
learning about like you say themselves but also there are organizations aren't there who offer yeah. good good advice on on this yes, so we can do. maybe put some links actually on mm. the podcast yeah. notes yeah. would be good so if i chat to you after angelina yeah. we can provide that for listeners so okay so we talked about like teaching and inquiry let's move back to the book now angelina from for the final part of the podcast and how have you found it being received so far it just came out a couple of weeks ago didn't it mm -hmm. we're talking in october 2020 so yeah. um you told me you were so busy with the yeah. promotion and, and that yeah. kind of thing so what what comments have you received Okay, so the book was uh, officially, publication day was the 24th of September. So it's, oh, sorry. it's actually two weeks today since the book officially was uh, came out. And the response has been really amazing. At the moment, we are number one on Amazon, uh, bestseller Amazon for history and biography. Congratulations. Fantastic. So, so um, people um, have been really buying the book and really engaging with the book. And that's that's just great. And we're happy with all kinds of engagement, whether it's positive or negative engagement, because, you know, we were sort of prepared for that, you know, and, you know, it gives us a chance to say you need to you need to read the book. You know, even mm -hmm. if you haven't, you know, if you're only looking at the names, if you're not reading the book properly, then you need to do that first before you sort of offer any critique. So we're really pleased with the responses that we've been getting from people. That's, it's been really good. Yeah, yeah. we've got a campaign. Well, not we, but a retired head teacher called Yvonne Davis. She started a GoFundMe campaign. She wants to raise enough money so that the, the book is in every primary and secondary school in the country. So she's currently trying to raise about £200,000 so she can do that, so she can buy books, so they can be in all. And I think that's a wonderful initiative that she's doing. So, yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's gaining a lot of momentum as well. Great. Well, we can put a link to that as well in, yeah. in, in the podcast notes. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we found it extremely helpful working with you because we've included a lot of the names from the book in the innovate stage of the project so the, where the children find out about those people and like i said earlier in the podcast because they're fairly short biographies you know you do a, you mm. summarize them beautifully angelina but you keep the spirit of the people in there it's not just a you know here we go here's a quick uh, list because yeah. i mean someone's life is such a yeah. long life or i know some of them were shorter sadly but people yeah. achieve so much in their life but you've managed to condense it but not lose the humanity of these people and i think they're wonderful a lot a lot of these could be used by certainly most or if not all could be used by older children teachers of older children but for primary children there's some lovely stories and individuals here that are, it's very important to tell their story so if teachers got the book even if you don't use cornerstones you could get the book and pick out the stories to help you enhance your well it's not even enhancing is it it's talking about people who are relevant in historical mm. periods so can i end on a question it's a hard yeah. question really but what what hopes have you got for the future inclusion of black stories and black significance within the narrative of British history, you know, moving, are we, are we at a pivotal era? Do you think this is, are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I think there are lots of people doing really great work. There are lots of teachers that are incorporating this history into their, into their schemes of work every, all over the country who are doing it I'm not holding out for this current government to make any U-turns. 
and that's completely fine because we'll just keep going you know we'll keep going we'll keep making resources i'll keep doing the things that i'm doing other people will keep doing the work that they're doing until eventually you know somebody will have to say yes this is just going to have to be part a compulsory part of the curriculum it's you know uh, the the campaign's been going on for about 40 years now literally 40 years people have been lobbying government for this to happen and they you know most governments have sort of said no Okay, and that's, you know, and, you know, but, you know, you keep, you know, you're in it for the long haul, you're not expecting that people say yes straight away, that would be nice. But, you know, the case is making itself really, isn't it? The case is making itself, given what's been happening this past year, been happening, you know, it's to the case is making itself and eventually somebody's just a, a, a government minister, a secretary of state for education is going to say, you know what, this is, it's, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to incorporate it. We're going to have to reincorporate um, Black Britons into the narrative. It's only a matter of time, really. Well, that's a, that's a really good note to end on, I think, Angelina. And, and I know that people listening will be very keen on keeping an eye on the national curriculum, but also what they can do in their school and um, mm -hmm. what they could do in the conversations and the representation of people yeah. in there, not just throughout the history curriculum, but throughout the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So yeah. thank you so much for your time today. All thank the best you. with the book. It sounds like it's, it's doing really well already. Um, yeah. I urge any listeners, if you're interested, just please get a hold of the book. I promise you, you'll just keep dipping into it as yeah. well, just to remind really? yourself of these people. Yeah. Can I just say lastly that, you know, teachers often feel like they're on their own, that they just they don't know where they can get the support to, to do this work, you know, to really provide good, good lessons and good pedagogy for this type of history. But, if, you know, they're not alone. And, you know, I'm one of many people doing this work. And if they need support, because I know they do need support. I think the key thing is at the moment is like when teachers are being trained, you know, doing their PGCE, that somebody comes in at that point and helps them to to navigate but then they're not on their own i think lots of the times people are like i'm not going to touch this because i just don't know what i'm doing and i don't mm. know who to turn to who to talk to about how i get how how i can how i can facilitate this but just uh, know that they're not yeah well that's lovely in fact mm. i think we carry on the conversation on social media you know if people want yeah. to if they follow us or follow you i know you're on linkedin aren't you angelina i am yes and we're on twitter um linkedin and instagram probably twitter's the best place to contact mm. us but you could dm us and we can pass that on to you angelina we might yeah. get duplicates of similar mm. questions but yeah. i think it's important to keep the conversation going and thank you again for all the help you've given to us um the consultancy work and for your work in general and thank and you. the colleagues that you've got so thank you for your time and all the best mm.